Hi, I'm Sebastian King. I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. In today's session, I have the great pleasure of chatting to John about anorectal malformations, a topic that John knows an enormous amount about. John, thanks again for Thank spending time with us. Um, I thought that I'd start with anorectal malformations, seeing you know quite a bit about that, having edited the textbook. Yes. Um, so I thought it would be best to break it up into boys and girls mm -hmm. um, and to think about the diagnosis when the babies are born and then go through their management from there. So if we were to focus on the boys first, what are some of the key features that you think about when you go to see a newborn baby with an anorectal malformation that's a boy? Well, first thing is we just need to make sure have we really got an anorectal malformation or not? Because sometimes you get the you get the referral, that's what it is, but it turns out to be something a bit different or it's more complicated than was originally advertised. That's quite an issue. So we need to make sure we've got the physical examination right. But on the premise that the common circumstance in a boy, there's either a perineal fistula where you can see a hole where the meconium might be coming out um, or there might not be anything at all, then we're trying to work out have we got an abnormality that's close to the skin or further up inside the pelvis where it's more complicated, where the fistula might be, uh, if it's present, connected to the urinary tract. Uh, and then one of the issues that I need to work out is, well, have we got any clue that we might have a urinary tract fistula like uh, recto uh, uh, urethral, rectoprostatic, rectovesicle or uh, uh, fistula, occasionally to the bulbous urethra. Um, occasionally we'll have air and meconium coming out the urethra. Pretty rare, of course, but possible. So we're asking, have we got any suggestion that there's meconium in the urethra? Uh, because there's something in the urine that might give us a clue. Or have we got some physical abnormality in the median rafe or the fusion of the scrotum might suggest the fistula is quite close to the skin? Because if we've got a relatively superficial fistula, it might be running right on the uh, uh, median rafe, or it might actually just beneath the median rafe, but it might actually make the scrotum bifid, which we see in rectobulbar fistulae or when fistula is connecting from the rectum right to the front of the anterourethra rather than at the bulb, yep. which is, uh, we can get a clue for that by the fact that the, the scrotal fusion is not quite right. And do you, how much um, credence do you put to the different racial backgrounds and how they present in the boys with anorectal malformations? Have you, what have you noticed there over your... Well, it just makes, makes a bit of a difference. Um, the first thing is that for children with dark skin, it's much harder to see if we've got a, a fistula that might have meconium in it because sometimes it might not be that obvious. The skin might be just thick enough and dark enough that it's hard to see. So that's one thing. Otherwise, it's not that much of a difference in racial groups for uh, the appearance of the fistula, although the, the frequency of the different sorts of anorectal malformations might vary a bit from one part of the world to another. Um, when we did the book a bit over 10 years ago in the early 2000s, um, of course, there were rare things that occurred really co relatively commonly in India that mm. nobody else in the world saw, yeah. okay? Like 
pouch colon yeah. and whatever, uh, which I've never seen in person. But for your average Indian paediatric surgeon, there's the sort of thing they see once or twice a year. Mm. So there are a few rare things that vary in frequency, but for all the common things, are roughly the same. And so if you take the boy who has a, an opening onto the perineum, yes. um, what's been your approach in the first 24 hours and then in terms of their, your operative approach? Well, the first thing is we've finished the physical examination to work out have I got a normal natal cleft suggesting that I might have normal buttock innervation and normal buttock muscle function, um, uh, which is an important issue. I want to make sure I've got a normal sacrum because the sacrum's missing. We know there's about a 90% chance that the sacral nerves might be missing as well. Um, so recognising that we've got a normal coccyx, normal sacrum is a good starting point for suggesting that maybe the long-term prognosis for function might not be too bad, but if the sacrum's missing or deficient, um, then the long-term prognosis, let alone the underlying surgery, might be a lot more complicated, so that's a really important issue. And then, of course, the other important thing in a boy with an anorectal malformation is the fact that there's a high risk of a lot of other things wrong, so we need to look for the vectoral association anomalies to make sure we're not ignoring what might be really complicated things like, you know, complicated cardiac abnormalities, which might totally change the effect uh, on, you know, the, of the prognosis, because we might end up being, you know, dying of a cardiac abnormality if, unless we've got it all fixed very quickly. Mm. So those sort of things make a difference. And then, of course, there's the rare chance that we might have some complicated syndrome or even something relatively common like Down syndrome yep. that we need to make sure we haven't missed that, which is easy in a baby. And have you, um, your approach in the past has been to, to do a, a neonatal repair for yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, no, if I had a fistula, let's say I had a fistula in the middle of the what might be otherwise the perineal body, hmm. I might try dilating it if I can. I'll start... I'll, on the physical, I'll use some lacrimal probes to see if I can get into the anal canal or the rectum. And if I can, then I might try to dilate it because if I can dilate it up enough, even if it's not a permanent solution to the problem, it might avoid needing an operation in the first 24 hours of life mm. or the second, life, second day of life because um, we might not need a colostomy or a definitive repair straight away, we might be able to allow the kid to grow a bit um, so we can avoid neonatal emergency surgery. Because if we could, I reckon that's probably a bit better mm. for the, all the anaesthetic reasons of the effect on the brain development. So if we didn't need an operation in the first 24 hours or the first few weeks, um, there's some suggestion that that might be better. So I'll see if I can I dilate it. If I can, then I might just see can I manage without doing anything more complicated straight away and then do a definitive repair a few weeks or a few months later, depending on what's happening. But mostly you end up doing a colostomy in the first 24 hours on the second day of life once you've made the diagnosis. Hmm. So we can then empty the distal colon, um, uh, unblock the bowel and then let the baby grow and then fix it at a more convenient time 
not only for the surgeon but also also for the baby to make sure we've got another we've got a healthy baby rather than a sick baby and in terms of the timing, so if we were to take the, the babies, that the boys that don't have an opening onto the perineum, yeah. so with a presumed fistula to the urinary tract or no yeah. fistula at all, yeah. um, you, your approach has been to wait 24 hours to see what that column of gas does? Yeah, yeah, so I might have done, I might have waited to do, to do the equivalent of an invertigram, just not very common anymore, but... Um, Why do you think we moved sure. away from the invertigram? Oh, for no good reason, I reckon. Hmm. Uh, it's the idea that holding the baby upside down for 30 seconds must be bad for it while you take the x-ray, but remember it was upside down for three months before it was born, so for another 30 seconds won't hurt it. Hmm. So I don't reckon that actually matters at all. So I still think that's a good thing to do because you get a lot of information from what is otherwise an amazingly simple test. Mm. Okay, so it tells you a lot of things without anything really complicated. You don't need a complicated investigation to figure out what's happening. And what did um, you look for on those invertigrams or the... Uh, where it is in relation to the, the classic, um, you know, uh, PC line, the eye point, um, PC line, a pubococcygeal line, the top of the pubis to the bottom of the coccyx, I point bottom of the uh, the uh, the uh, ossification centre on the coccyx, um, uh, and then uh, and then the the bottom of the ossification centre on the ischium. Mm. Okay, and then because that divides them into ones that are usually intrapelvic, ones that are coming through the pelvic floor, or ones that are just under the skin, mm. and then because if it's obviously quite close to the skin, then I don't need a colostomy, I can fix it with an anaplasty, hmm. which is, is that bad? No, I think that's good, because if we can do a really simple operation um, uh, and get the same result, seems a bit better than a really complicated operation with a, because a full, uh, you know, uh, pannier operation with a posterior split, um, with or without a laparotomy is a really big operation for a baby mm. and if we really need that that's fine but if we don't then we want to do it a simpler way if it's possible because I don't think um, sort of simple anaplasty is a little bit out of fashion relatively at the moment because people often did try to do simple anaplasty when they shouldn't have mm. but if it's you got the right indication it's still a good operation. Yep and if the decision is that you are going to go and head with a colostomy. I know that you've taught over the years all the different tips and tricks for forming a colostomy. What are some of the things well, I that... Agree, I agree with Alberto Pena that the safest thing to do in a colostomy is the, the, the bottom of the descending colon, the top of the uh, sigmoid, divided colostomy, so you've, you avoid prolapse, because if you do a loop colostomy, it nearly always prolapses, no matter what you do. So a simple divided colostomy, it's not that big a deal. It takes a little bit longer, a few minutes longer, but not enough uh, to really make a difference to the baby as long as the baby's well enough to have the operation in the first place. Mm. There's no reason why you can't spend another 10 minutes making two stomas effectively rather than just one. And the advantage of that is that if you've actually made a mistake and got the, wrong end, got the ends the wrong way around, 
doesn't actually matter. You don't kill the baby by oversowing the end of the descending colon, hmm. which I've seen, sadly, um, it got done and then needed an emergency operation sure. to fix it. Yep. And what are, some of the, what are some of the tips in terms of being able to make sure you are bringing out the right bits of the colon well, or the correct bits? Well, you need to see if you can find the pelvic re reflection. Um, and I often would put a, a, a hagar, a sound, up the, rect, up the, the bowel, because we'll have it open, mm. and we're just trying to work out which end is which. Um, um, but even before I've opened it, I'll be, I'll be, from the outside, I'll be trying to work out, can I pull the bowel out enough so I can see, is it going down behind the bladder um, to the pelvic reflection, or is it going up the side, uh, uh, the left flank? Um, which is often fairly easy to work out. And then we need to just make sure we haven't got the transverse colon, which is occasionally even the ascending colon, because mm. in a baby the colon becomes so mobile, and you've often got a relatively small opening. So this is not a full laparotomy, because you don't want to make a huge cut if you don't need to, because if we make a small hole, then the colostomy ends up being much neater much more likely not to prolapse. But the, the dis disadvantage of not having a big hole is that you have to do it almost by feel mm. rather than by looking at it, which is a bit of a risk. And if you've got the transverse colon or the ascending colon, it's easy to get them muddled up thinking you've got the, the sigmoid when you haven't. Mm. Or you've got the bottom of the sigmoid rather than the top, which is all been seen all of those yes. things go wrong. And you can't um, rely on the uh, the um, omentum on the no, transverse. No, no, the omentum in a baby is a transparent layer like a bit of glad wrap with just a few blood vessels in mm. it because it hasn't got any fat in it usually and it's really easy to miss it when you kind of imagine the transverse colon the way it'll, the, the omentum will be like it is in an older kid where it's all fatty and it's really easy to identify and it's effectively impossible to miss the difference between transverse colon and sigmoid. But in a baby, it's really easy to do that if you're not careful. Mm. If you don't recognise the omentum is effectively invisible, if unless it's got, a, see a few blood vessels think, oh, this little filmy membrane on the edge of the colon that you didn't realise was the omentum, which actually is. It's all mm. the omentum. So it's easy to miss that. But once you recognise you're looking for a momentum that looks transparent rather than full of fat, it's not like so difficult. It's like everything. You only see what you're looking for. Yep. If you're looking for fat, you don't find it. And you think that's the sigmoid when really it's the transverse colon with no fat in the momentum. And when you then, baby's getting a bit older and you're looking to do your distal colostogram, yeah. what are some of the things that you look for on the colostogram to make sure that you've got all the right information for your definitive Occasionally repair. you need some contrast in the, col in the, in the urinary tract. Mm. So in your average little boy, if we're the, the common circumstance, we're in a recto uh, prostatic uh, urethral fistula, um, we want to know, is it, can we see the beak on the, on the bottom of the of the distal bowel because it usually beaks and turns like a parrot's beak into the back of the urinary tract but occasionally the urinary tract is so distorted the urethra instead of being the posterior urethra instead of being a vertical it's a sort of zigzag sort of zigging and then back to the bladder neck um, and which is really important to recognize because when you're doing the surgery 
you might think you're near the end of the the, the fistula when you're actually already onto the onto the urethra, which is pulled back. And if you're not careful, you've opened the urethra and taken a piece out of the back mm. of it, thinking that was the colon, which actually the urethra sort of pulled back. So that's one of the anatomical variants in rectoprostatic urethral fistulae that are easy to make a mess of unless you've done the invert, you know, the uh, colostogram effectively. As I said, you might need to put contrast in the urinary tract to make sure you know exactly where they join mm -hmm. and it's not sort of got a funny zigzag in it that you need to know about beforehand because when you do the surgery, if you don't know that, it's much more likely you're going to make a mess of it. And so your approach with the PSARP as opposed to the laparoscopic approach, have you had a rectobulbar being the PSARP and rectoprostatic being the larva? I've been doing that for a fair while. Hmm. Um, my personal view is that the, if we've got a rectovesicle fistula, which of course the complications um, of the surgery are not much different, but the complications of the underlying anatomy are a lot worse for the child, so the prognosis is worse, but it's actually really effective for a laparoscopic operation because you can see it really easily. Hmm. So laparoscopic um, mobilisation of a rectovesicle fistula or a relatively high prostatic fistula is fairly straightforward now. Um, but a bulbar fistula, the important thing is to remember it's not always just at the bulb at the corner. Sometimes it goes around the corner mm. and you can't see that very easily from the top. So you think you're disconnecting it from the back of the urethra right at the, at the junction between vertical posterior and, and, and horizontal anterior urethra when the fistula actually runs underneath the anterior urethra and joins on the front of the anterior urethra mm. in a way that you can't see. So my view is that that's the time where you really need a penure operation. That's the best time for it, I reckon, mm. because it's the only time you really get a really good look at the anatomy. You can see the urethra from the back. You can see the posterior urethra as well as the bulb and then round the corner into the anterior urethra and you know exactly where they join so you, you just you know disconnecting it at the right point not at the wrong point. Yeah I think that the um, often people who don't do as many of these as you have make the mistake of thinking that the further the fistula is towards the skin the easier the operation is going to be but yeah, actually right. the yeah, common right. wall yeah. is yeah. longer yeah. isn't it? Yeah, right. Yes it is so so because it's the same, um, the same issue for a boy as in a girl, because in a boy, the back of the urinary tract might be stuck to the front of the, front of the bowel if you're not careful, which mm. is why it often kinks the urethra. But of course, that's a problem in a little girl too, where it's, even if the fistula's lower down, the, the last bit of the rectum or the fistula, whatever it is, is often stuck very tightly to the back of the vagina, making it much more difficult. So you need to recognise that the genital tract or the urinary tract, respectively, which gender it is, might be stuck to the front of the bowel. Mm. That you need to be aware that that's a risk that you take into account to make sure you're not... Uh, misjudging the anatomy. Yeah, and creating the correct plane there. You're right, exactly. That's the hard part often. Well, thank you again very much for your right. wisdom and thoughts today. And we look forward to continuing these sessions with Professor John Hudson.